Boosting COVID-19 Boosters in Nursing Homes, a conversation with Shirley Sullivan. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our series of webinars focused on bringing you information about COVID-19-related topics. The information in these weekly webinars is geared toward long-term care and skilled nursing facilities, but we encourage everyone who is interested to attend. Today, we'll be talking about COVID-19 boosters, including the newly approved second booster. My name is Kathy Caudill. I'm a communications specialist with Quality Insights, and now I would like to introduce our guest today, Shirley Sullivan. Shirley has been a nurse for 25 years. For 12 of those years, she has been here at Quality Insights working on quality improvement, and she currently works as a quality improvement specialist with our QIN QIO nursing home project. So welcome, Shirley, and thank you for joining us today to talk about boosters. Thank you. It's good to be here. All right. So to get started, uh, who should get the COVID-19 vaccines and the first booster? Well, at this time, there are currently three uh, vaccines authorized or approved for uh, use in the, for COVID in the United States. And these include Pfizer and Moderna, which are the mRNA vaccines. Um, they are the preferred vaccines and have full FDA approval. The third option is Johnson & Johnson and Janssen, also known as J&J Janssen vaccine, which is authorized under the emergency use authorization. Now, all three vaccines are options for both the primary and the initial booster dose. Now, the primary series for the COVID vaccine is recommended by the CDC for everyone over the age of five and older. And the booster dose is recommended for um, everyone over the age of 12 and older. Now, COVID-19 vaccines have shown to be effective at protecting people from getting seriously ill, being hospitalized and even dying, um, especially people who had the booster. And we know that our older adults are at the highest risk of getting very sick from COVID. More than 81% of COVID deaths occur in people over the age of 65. And additionally, a person's risk of severe illness increases when the number of underlying medical conditions they have also increases. And this highlights that our nursing home population are among the most vulnerable to severe COVID illness. Um, and in addition to getting the residents vaccinated to further protect them, we also want to focus on increasing the vaccination rate for our nursing home staff as well. And so therefore, you know, we really want to encourage both residents and the staff to receive the booster for the best protection for this vulnerable population. And, you know, at this time, we know that the staff has been mandated to get the primary vaccine series, but the booster hasn't been mandated. And there are some staff that are reluctant to get the booster. Um, so we really just want to continue to educate the staff on the benefits of getting the booster, you know, that will not only give them the added immunity, but will also help protect the residents they care for who are most at risk for severe illness. So surely the FDA recently authorized second booster shots under some circumstances, and then the CDC also updated its guidance. Can you give us a summary of that new guidance? Yeah, so on uh, March 30th, this, um, the CDC did come out with some updates of who could have received the second booster. Um, the added guidance recommends that people aged 12 and older who are moderately or severely immunocompromised may choose to receive the second booster dose of an mRNA vaccine four months after their first booster dose. Um, and then also adults 50 and older can receive a second booster, again, using an mRNA vaccine at least four months after their first booster. 
And then people between the ages of 18 and 49 years of age who received a J&J vaccine for both their primary series and their booster dose, they can also receive a second booster dose using the mRNA vaccine four months after the first booster dose. If someone received a Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine and a Johnson & Johnson booster, are additional Johnson & Johnson boosters recommended? Well, so, you know, people who receive the J&J vaccine for their primary series and their first booster, you know, they can receive a second booster. However, it's recommended that the second booster be an mRNA vaccine. So it should be either Pfizer or Moderna. Um, So it's not recommended to get a second booster of the J&J vaccine. And, you know, and the reason for this is that a CDC um, study found that adults who receive both the J&J vaccine as their primary and their first booster, they had much lower levels of protection um, against COVID-associated emergency room and urgent care visits during this Omicron outbreak compared to adults who received the mRNA COVID-19 um, booster. You know, so, um, so moving forward with the second booster, the recommendation is only to be given the mRNA vaccines. And, um, you know, and to clarify, um, although mRNA vaccines are the preferred ones, the J&J vaccine, you know, can be given in certain circumstances, um, you know, as the primary series and the first booster. Um, you know, for instance, if a person is allergic to one of the ingredients in the mRNA vaccine or they had an adverse reaction um, after they received one of the vaccines, or if the person just understood the risk of the J&J vaccine and booster and, and wanted to move forward with it, the recommendation had been, let's you know, go ahead and give them the J&J booster vaccine rather than leave the person unvaccinated. If someone is eligible now to receive a second booster, does that mean that they have to have the second booster to now be considered up to date on their COVID-19 vaccines? Yeah, so no, um, at this time, you don't have to have a second booster to be considered, you know, up to date. Um, You know, so everyone over 12 years and older who are fully vaccinated are considered up to date until the time they are eligible for the first booster. And that would be five months after Pfizer or Moderna or two months after the J&J vaccine. So after that time period, they would need to get one booster to be considered up to date. And um, you know, a person is considered fully vaccinated two weeks after receiving all recommended doses in the primary series of the COVID-19 vaccination. And a person is considered up to date if they have received all recommended doses of the primary series plus one booster when eligible. So again, a second booster is not needed to be considered up to date at this time. Now it can certainly change as more information comes out and CDC, you know, um, updates the recommendation. So you want to really keep an eye out for that. All right. So our next question is about patient consent. Mm-hmm. How do you get a resident's consent for a COVID-19 vaccine if that resident is not able to ask questions or otherwise communicate with the staff? <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, this is a good question. Um, you know, I know from speaking with facilities that, you know, one of the barriers to getting the residents booster shots um, was um, hearing that, you know, getting the signed consent from relatives or the medical proxy. You know, so I just want, you know, we can kind of go over what are the requirements for consent? You know, so first of all, you know, you need to get consent from either the resident, if they're able, 
And if they're not able to give consent, then their medical proxy, um, who is often a family member. Um, and then the consent should be documented in their chart. Um, and then prior to getting the consent, you want to give the COVID-19 fact sheet that explains the risk and benefits of the COVID vaccination. And you really want to answer any questions that they may have. Um, and then when you get the consent, you know, it doesn't have to be a written consent. A written consent is not required by federal law for COVID-19 vaccination in the United States. You can either get written consent, you can get email or verbal consent from residents or their proxy prior to getting vaccinated. And then, you know, once the um, resident is vaccinated, you would want to go ahead and give them an updated vaccination card or a printout that tells them, you know, what vaccine they received or the date they received it. Um, you know, so if you're finding it difficult to get a written consent uh, from family members or the medical proxy, um, and then your policy doesn't allow for it, you might want to consider looking at changing your policy to allow for verbal or email consent to overcome this barrier. Um, and, you know, and just remember, um, good documentation is important. You know, and, you know if you're given um, verbal consent, you want to document who gave the consent, the date and time you spoke, that you discussed the risk and benefits, if they asked any questions, um, and that they received the fact sheet. And this is considered legal consent under federal law. Can you talk briefly about the updates on the NHSN database reporting the new event level vaccination forms? Yeah, so, um, you know, facilities should continue um, to submit your, you know, cumulative weekly vaccination data for your residents and staff in your weekly COVID-19 vaccination modules. And, um, you know, data can be reported to your modules in three ways. You can, one, um, just enter the data directly into your data entry screens. You can also um, upload a CS CSV file. And then now, as of March 28th, 2022, um, long-term care facilities also have the option to use what's called the event-level COVID-19 vaccination forms. Now, these forms are replacing the existing Excel data track and worksheet and are really considered like an advanced version of the Excel worksheet. And, um, you know, and some of the advantages of using this event level form is that um, they're supposed to simplify your uh, reporting of your summary data. So it's going to automatically calculate and display your weekly totals. So you'll no longer need to um, manually calculate and enter totals in your summary forms. Um, it's also gonna capture um, changes in vaccination status over time. So if you have a resident, let's say in February, who um, refused the vaccination, but maybe in April, now they chose to have it, um, it's going to show both instances on this um, new way of recording uh, and uploading your data. It's also um, going to, for the first time, you're going to be able to record religious exemptions. Um, up until now, religious exemptions have been listed just under refused category. Now, it's still going to be under the refused um, column, but it will have like a sub-column that you can pick religious exemptions. So it will help you better track um, your refusals, um, you know, those who refuse from those who are religious exemptions. And then another benefit um, is that it's going to allow you to track uh, your residents or your staff at the individual level. So you can give each person um, a personal identifier number. Um, it can be a combination of any letters or numbers that you create. 
And then you can track that individual person on this form week after week. Um, you know, and if you haven't had a chance to review this new event level form, um, the NHSN vaccination team did host several webinars over the last couple of weeks on this. Um, and we're going to put some links in the chat of, you know, for the webinar, um, a step-by-step -step guide using this new event level form. And, also, and then also um, a refresher training on the NHSN data system, just entering your data. Uh, those three links are there right now. Thank and you. For, yeah, and for those <laughs> of you who are interested in learning more about NHSN event level reporting, that is our topic for next week. We're going to be going into detail into that. If you want to reach out to Shirley directly, you can reach her at 1-800-642-8686 and enter extension 7805. You can also email her at Sullivan at qualityinsights.org. And you can check out our other interviews by visiting qualityinsights.org slash QIN underscore vlogs and pods. That's qualityinsights.org slash QIN underscore V-L-O-G-S-N-P-O-D-S. Before I wrap up, I'd like to clarify that next week's topic for next week's webinar will be on a general overview of the NHSN reporting, not specifically just the event level reporting form. Shirley, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank all of you for joining us.